don't we? Thank you for that ministry. Let me mention a testimony from the wedding just to be an encouragement to your heart, what God can do in various settings. Um, at the conclusion of the wedding ceremony yesterday for JP and Sherry, um, the Moores, Sherry's parents, their next-door neighbors had come to the wedding, and a 70-year-old man um, approached her dad after the wedding, and he said, I've never heard those scripture readings that I heard in that ceremony today. And he said, I need to talk to you about what they mean. And he even said, I need to talk to you tomorrow, which would be today. So it wasn't just a kind of a casual, that was interesting. God, God's at work, so continue praying. But isn't that encouraging what, what the Lord can do? And uh, thankful for the, the witness to the gospel in a Christ-honoring wedding ceremony. And, Thankful for J.P. and Sherry's heartbeat on that and the Lord using it. Turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John and chapter 8. Uh, John chapter 8. And we've been studying together the Gospel of Matthew, as you know, and we're the early stages still of exploring the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. And we are going back there this morning. But there's a scene in the Lord's life here in John 8 that I think can underscore... How important it is for us to give attention to our text this morning, kind of the, the backdrop that uh, is behind some of the Lord's teaching. We're going to begin reading in verse 1, and we're going to read down through verse 11 of John chapter 8. Jesus went out, uh, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now we aren't going to settle into all the twists and turns that might be of interest in this passage, and there are a number of them. I simply wanted us to look at, at this one scene in the Lord's life that some have pointed to as, uh, as questioning his viewpoint regarding the Old Testament and the law. The law did prescribe the death penalty for the sin of adultery. Should we conclude then from what we've just read that Jesus was, at, at least at a minimum, wanting to relax the Old Testament law? Should we conclude that maybe he wanted to do 
away with it entirely? And that was a question that Jesus anticipated that people would be asking. I want us to go back to Matthew chapter 5, and I want us to see his answer. Several weeks ago, we worked our way phrase by phrase through the general answer that is given in Matthew chapter 5. And so I want us to, this morning, just read verses 17 through 19. In light of the law saying, calling for death penalty, stoning for adultery, and how this whole episode in John 8 wrapped up, what do we think about Jesus and the law? Well, look with me at verse 17, and we're just going to read it. Uh, verses 17 through 19. Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least of, of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now I'll just pause there to say it's clear, just straightforward reading, that the Lord had no intention of doing away with the significance of the Old Testament. In fact, as he followed up, his words are actually confirming its significance. And then the next major section of the sermon, beginning with verse 20, he takes it even a step further. Notice, and he says in verse 20, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of God. Now, a number of the Pharisees we know were total hypocrites. But as a, as a whole group, in the eyes of the common people, these were the scholars and guardians of the law. These were the best examples of living according to the law's righteousness. So for a common person to be told that you're going to, you're going to have to live a life more faithful than those men to even have a shot at heaven, I mean, that had to just be completely shocking. As they thought about themselves, they had to be thinking, what chance do I have? And as they thought about some kind of a righteousness that sur could surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees, I mean, what, how could that be possible? What are we supposed to think even about Jesus' affirmation of the law? Well, beginning in the next verse and continuing right down through the end of the chapter, Jesus gives several illustrations of what he means by a righteousness exceeding that of the Pharisees. And we considered last time, verses 21 through 26, and I hope that you have even a note in your margin to just kind of identify personal, relational conflict. All right? What do you, how should we relate when there's offenses between individuals? What kind of righteousness um, fulfills and exceeds the righteousness? What, what would be unrighteousness? And Jesus said that anyone who commits murder is clearly guilty of unrighteousness. But remember that he goes on to say, so is a man that, that harbors an angry spirit. 
And so is a man who utters derogatory insults. He's also guilty of unrighteousness in the realm of personal conflict. And what Jesus was promoting is our regarding the sanctity of all life that is made in his image. And that we regard every other individual as equally made in the image and likeness of God. And because of that, I ought to ascribe to their life value. And I not only should not murder any, but I shouldn't harbor anger in my heart. And I should not be uttering derogatory insults. Those are, <clears throat> those are offenses against the same law that forbids murder. So Jesus is internalizing, and he's even intensifying the demands of the law. And now with verse 27, he moves to answering the the same kind of question that might arise from that scene in John 8. All right, he begins verse 27 by reminding his audience of the law's statement. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit, what? Adultery. And does anyone remember what, which one of the Ten Commandments that one is? The sixth commandment is, thou shalt not murder. And it is the very next commandment. It's as if Jesus is kind of walking through an exposition of the, the first two of the second table of the law at this point. And he says, you've heard it said in the seventh commandment, no adultery. Now, I do just want to pause here and remind us that that the law did prescribe for both murder and adultery, the law prescribed the same penalty, and that was the death penalty. We tend to view murder as a much more serious offense than adultery, but the penalty for these sins was the same. And I think part of the reason why we think differently about that is because adultery has become so prevalent in our society. There is no walk of life at all where you can't name some prominent individuals that have been guilty of this sin. But brethren, it should really be the case with God's people that our mindset and our attitudes are influenced by the word of God rather than by the patterns of our society. And I'll just give you one specific statement about this. We won't turn, but listen to Leviticus 20 and verse 10. The man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So I'm just talking about in the civil code of the Old Testament in that day governing that nation. These were crimes on an equal level. And that ought to automatically cause us to start thinking about how serious this is in the eyes of the Lord. But after reminding his hearers of the law's statement, Jesus, as he did in that previous Illustration, he goes on to state that men are not only guilty of unrighteousness for the act of adultery, but for the condition of the heart. Look at verse 28. I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. 
The word lust, you may want to note, is, is from the word, uh, it kind of carries a spectrum. It could just be desire, or it may be more intense and refer to passion. But there is a preposition that is also part of this word that communicates being on or upon. Right, so you start to put those together, and the concept is setting your passion on, or, uh, or desire for, putting your desire upon. Right, so the Bible is saying that when a man turns his attention to a woman with passion or desire for relational dynamics outside of the marriage covenant, that man is guilty before God of unrighteousness in the form of adultery in the heart. Now, I do want to back up and just say that's not the same thing as merely appreciating beauty and attractiveness. The, the Bible does speak of both men and women who were especially attractive, and it does so with wholesome appreciation. But the dynamic being pointed to here is to a desire for satisfaction or pleasure through some form of a relationship that God has simply not given to you in the bond of marriage. And that covers a broad range of activities. If I go back to the previous commandment, the sixth commandment in the Lord's teaching, in the realm of interpersonal conflict, all right, the command not to murder does address the apex of the crime, so to speak, okay? but it includes everything that leads to it and that contributes to it. What leads to and contributes to murder? It's the stirring of all that in the heart, right? and even the, the uttering of those insults. In the same way that murder is the apex but includes everything that leads to it and contributes to it, in this arena of sexual intimacy, the commandment not to commit adultery points to the apex sin being breaking the marriage covenant. But it includes every other sin in this arena from pornography to premarital involvement, to all forms of a relationship outside of a man and woman united together through the covenant of marriage. And, and the unlawful and unrighteous desire, verse number 28, again, is speaking of. According to verse number 29, look at it there, can be stimulated by what? It can be stimulated by what your eye looks on. So you can see reference in verse number 29 to if your eye offend. And the eye offends in the sense of becoming an occasion for stumbling, an occasion for falling into sin. And it's interesting that the word in the Greek language prior to its use in the scripture... So back in the first century and, and prior to that time, this Greek word actually um, referred to the idea of a trap, and the word meant to trigger a trap. 
And it's quite a picture of what can happen in a man's mind. What his eyes gaze on becomes something of a trigger that actually, that actually springs a trap of passion and desire for what is outside of God's will for him. And the Lord's words put the spotlight, especially here, as you can see, on, on a man who looks on a woman. That doesn't mean that women don't commit the sin and that they don't have sinful passions triggered by what they look at. And again, there's Bible examples of that. Potiphar's wife definitely pursued Joseph, having been stirred up by the lust of the eyes. But the fact is that Jesus even communicates this way because men are especially susceptible to having wrong thoughts triggered through what they look at. And I want to say to our men and to our ladies that that isn't merely the case with weak men. Uh, well, those men, they got a problem. Right? And, you know, dirty-minded men and whatever else, and there are dirty-minded men. But the Bible states without any qualification that Job was the godliest man of his day. God said it to the devil. Said, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him. But Job gave testimony that he made a covenant with his what? He made a covenant with his eyes in order to deal with his thoughts about young women. The godliest man of his day said, I had to deal with things at the eye level so that my heart stayed right. And it's not only a matter of the eyes. Verse 30 if you look there, you can see that if something else offends, the eyes can't offend, and what can offend? The hand can't offend. And if I continue to use the, the picture that is in that words, uh, that is in that word, not only can our eyes trigger a trap, but do you know our hands can also trigger a trap? Lustful passion is not only stirred up by what is seen, but it can be stirred up by the activity of touching. And I know some cultures show wholesome friendship and family affection different than other cultures. But I would just say to us that there is in the Lord's teaching right here, there is some encouragement to a hands-off type policy. Okay? And I would say, especially with young men and young ladies, I, I, I don't know, but I, I, I would say that it's hardly ever they are completely unaffected by what we call minor and incidental touching. And, and I do want to be careful. I don't, I'm, I'm not suggesting a spirit of condemnation. Please don't go out thinking every time pastor sees, you know, um, you know, uh, young men and young ladies and their arms around each other in a picture or something like that, that it's spirit of condemnation. And I'm not trying to promote that in everybody else either. 
But I am just saying this. The Lord said our hands can trigger a trap. And that ought to nurture some kind of thoughtfulness and wisdom and wholesome barriers. And we ought to at least think about the Lord's teaching before we just kind of casually erode certain barriers. And in light of the fact that that our eyes and our hands can be triggering the trap to unrighteous passions. And I hope you're just catching all that and recognizing these are the phrases that come out of our Lord's teaching. This isn't me trying to think of something to preach about today. Our eyes and our hands can trigger the trap to unrighteous, that's what's under discussion, passions. Notice what the Lord had to say. And I'm just going to read through verses 29 and 30 now. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And at this point, someone has suggested that, that all of that teaching is so extreme that the Lord is just using figures of speech, okay? and, and that he shouldn't be taken literally. And, and we're not going to delve into it real deeply because I'm trying to get through the, the section and let the whole, the whole section kind of have an impact on us. Um, so I'm not going to go through all the theories of, of interpretation and evaluating them, all right? I do want to make two particular statements. And the first of these that I would make is that Jesus is not counseling mutilation of the body as a strategy for avoiding hell or victory over lustful passion. Okay? We know that because other scripture texts speak directly to it. I'm not going to have us turn, but at the end of Colossians 2, and I would encourage you to go to Colossians 2.20, read through the end of that passage when you get an opportunity. But that's one of several passages where the scripture teaches that physical deprivation and chastisement of the body is actually insufficient strategy. And it can, in some cases, even stir up and provoke the flesh. So, so you could cut your body up, and you know there are cults that do that kind of thing. Okay? You could cut your body up, and you could remove various body parts and not gain spiritual victory. So Jesus isn't counseling, mutilate your body to avoid hell. But I would make a second statement, and this is why I'm going to be even more general. But we should take note of this. There is a heavy price tag for the sin of adultery. There is a heavy price tag for the sin of adultery. Now, we noted that, again, the Old Testament, the civil code of the Old Testament Israel did prescribe the death penalty for adultery. But you move out of even code and, and, and law, and you think of a passage like Proverbs chapter 6, it says that whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding, and he that does it destroys his own soul. 
So sin in this arena damages your inner man. That's what it's talking about. Your, your mind, your emotions, your will, your conscience. At, at the very core of your personhood. It's like you take a slice out of that. That same passage in Proverbs chapter 6 says that there is a social penalty. A wound and dishonor will you get and your reproach shall not be wiped away. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that there is a physical penalty. Flee fornication because every sin that a man commits is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own what? Against his own body. And, and there are multiple diseases that are out there today that are evidence of that reality. But what our text is implying, at a minimum, and what other passages confirm, is that there is an eternal penalty for the sin of adultery. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you don't need to turn, but... but the apostle says, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Right? And then there's a list of idolaters and thieves and greedy and drunkards and revilers. But right in that list, he refers to the sexually immoral, the adulterers, those who practice homosexuality. And he says, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. If you're jotting notes, you can even jot that. There, the Apostle Paul said, you can be absolutely sure about this. In fact, he says, let no man deceive you with vain words. You can be absolutely sure about this. That everyone who is sexually immoral and impure has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And he said, don't let anybody deceive you with vain words. Because of these things, the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. What the scripture declares is, is that people are guilty before God and liable for hell by virtue of both the acts of adultery and hearts of adultery. That's what Jesus is declaring. And with that in mind, I really don't doubt that Jesus literally meant that if you lost a body part in your fight against sin, you'd be better losing a body part than having a whole body but surrendered to the lust that condemns men and women to hell. Now, brethren, the Lord preached like this in part so that men would be brought face-to-face, in, in really, if I could say it this way, in an almost frightening manner with the fact that on their own they cannot achieve a righteous standing with God. This kind of preaching is designed, in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, it is designed to accomplish the, purchase, the purpose of stopping every self-righteous mouth and bringing all the world to a place of conviction before God. 
It's designed in Romans chapter 7 to bring conviction of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And that is why some really do react to this kind of preaching. Several years ago, a friend posted a blog entry that was entitled, Why Do Men Hate the Sermon on the Mount? And his blog linked to an article, I'm mentioning the name because you're welcome to go look at it later, not during the service, if you have your device. But it uh, was an article by a woman named Virginia Owen, who was at that time a professor at Texas A&M University. And I want to read a portion of the article. She said, most of the students at my university come from middle-class conservative Republican families. Therefore, when I assigned my freshman English class the Sermon on the Mount, a selection in rhetoric textbook taken from the King James Version, I expected them to have at least a nodding acquaintance with the reading and to express a measure of piety in their written responses. After all, Texas has always been considered at least marginally part of the Bible Belt. But then she said, the first paper I picked up began, in my opinion, religion is one big hoax. I was mildly surprised from, since this came from a student who had never expressed a single free-thinking notion the entire semester. I glanced at the opening sentence of the next paper. There's an old saying that you shouldn't believe everything you read, and it applies in this case. All right, I thought, maybe this is just a fluke. I reached for the third paper. Quote, it's hard to believe something that was written down thousands of years ago. I put down my red pen. This was no fluke. What I had here was a major trend. Why are these, so, why are these students so angry at what they read? Why are they so carefree in their dismissal of it? I read on, and the answer to the first part of my question became clear. And she gives some other quotes. And, and, and I'm skipping some, but here's some of the quotes she said. Other students wrote, The stuff churches preach is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun without thinking it is sin or not. Another student wrote, I did not like the essay Sermon on the Mount. It's hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect and no one is. Another student wrote, The things asserted in this sermon are absurd. And here's why I had the note to this in regards to this text. The things asserted in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman as adultery, that is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement I have ever heard. At this point, the teacher wrote, I began to be encouraged. There's something exquisitely innocent about not realizing you shouldn't call Jesus stupid. This was not exactly intellectual agnosticism talking here. It was just down-home hedonism. It's Herod watching Salome dance. It's the disciples asking who can be saved when Jesus deflated their dreams of the wealth with the, the needle's eye. This was the real thing, a pristine response to the gospel unfiltered through two millennial cultural haze. In fact, she wrote, the anger was preferable to the carefree dismissal of the text I found in other papers. And I'm not going to take the time to read other excerpts, but I'll finish with one more observation. She wrote, I find it strangely heartening that the Bible remains offensive to honest, ignorant hearers, just as it was in the first century. 
People do need to be offended, shocked, horrified to really come to grips with just what kind of wretched sinners we are if we're going to truly understand what the gospel saves us from. And when Jesus offended people with this kind of preaching, by driving home conviction of their guiltiness, it was an intention on the way to another intention. Jesus preached this way evangelistically, and I'm not retracing our overview, but, but he preached this way so that men would come to realize they need the gospel. He preached this way so that all of us would realize, on my own, I'm unrighteous and I can't make up for it. I need a righteousness given to me that I don't have. And the only righteousness that will do is the sinless life of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross to pay my sins penalty. If I will to declare to God in saving faith that I'm a guilty sinner, sorry for my sin, and I want to be delivered for it, from it, and I trust alone in what Jesus did as my substitute, God will not only forgive my sin, but he will commit the full credit of Jesus' righteousness and perfect obedience to my account with him. And that's what I desperately need. And Jesus preached the way he did to, ju to stress just how urgent this matter is. You better not say, I enjoy my sin too much right now and I don't want to give it up to come to Christ. You are playing literally with fire and the fire you're playing with is eternal hellfire. Those are the words of Jesus about it. And I don't have the time now for extended development beyond here, but, but brethren, Jesus also preached this way to lift up and guard and protect the honor and the blessedness of marriage. He preached condemning murder and everything that led to it to promote the sanctity of life made in the image of God. And he preached condemning adultery and everything that leads up to it to guard and protect and honor the blessedness of marriage. So that true citizens of the Lord's kingdom will be urged to fight against the inroads of lustful passion and its devastating end so that God's people can enjoy the very best and the highest ideals of marriage. When the Lord confronts and rebukes and even condemns sin, if we let it, it will be a means of grace for him to give us his very best for us. Brethren, believe it. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our what? Even our faith. And some may need to believe that you will go to hell if you stay surrendered to lust. And God would use it to drive you to Jesus Christ as your Savior. And all of us need to believe that sin in that arena only hurts. It never helps. And if we will trust God, God will give us his very best 
for our good and for his glory. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?